0: Okay, well if you want to grab your copy of God's Word and turn to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, that's kind of kind of right there in the middle of the Old Testament if you're not quite sure. If you can find Psalms, it's just a little bit ahead of that. Ecclesiastes. Chapter 1. How many of you have seen the movie Groundhog Day? You seen Groundhog Day? Yeah. Yeah with Bill Murray. It's about this guy, Phil Connors, a weatherman from Pittsburgh, imagine that, who's up in Punxsutawney, PA, reporting on Groundhog Day, okay? And the whole concept of this movie is that he relives February 2nd, Groundhog Day, over and over and over again. In fact, there are some obsessive viewers that believe that he relived that day for over three decades. I don't know about all that, but... Um, so what does Phil do to cope with this monotonous prison? What does he do to try, to try to find meaning when it seems like nothing he does really matters from one day to the next? Well, he looks for happiness in different experiences. He tries all kinds of things in this quest for some semblance of meaning. Phil turns to hedonistic, pleasures and denies himself nothing. There's this one scene where he's sitting in a diner. He's got this big donut in his hand with a cigarette between those two fingers and he is drinking coffee straight from the pot. Okay, He gorges himself on this table full of food. He punches out a guy who really annoys him. He seduces women. And when, that, when all that fails to satisfy him, well, Phil turns to greed and materialism. He robs an armored car and uses the money to buy the things that he always wanted. He tries to live out the life that he couldn't before. And finally, Phil turns to knowledge. He tries to learn and better himself. He takes up piano and ice sculpting, French poetry, just to to try to be a more educated, well-rounded man. And Phil doesn't wake up on February 3rd until he finally reaches contentment in his current circumstance. Only then is the curse lifted. And the last time he, re- he relives uh, February 2nd, he looks into the eyes of, the, of a woman that he's fallen in love with, and he says, I don't know what will happen tomorrow, but all I know is I'm happy right now. That's kind of the point of the book of Ecclesiastes. The only way to live a meaningful life in this meaningless existence is to find satisfaction and contentment in what God has given us. There's this really interesting scene in the movie early on in Phil's experience where he's trying to figure out what's going on. He's sitting at a bar in a bowling alley with these two local guys who are drunk. And he asks them this question. What would you do if you were stuck in one place and every day was the same and nothing you did really mattered. One of the guys stares into his beer mug and says, yep, that pretty much sums it up for me. You know, there are people that live that type of life all the time. Live for the weekends. People who can't wait to punch out on Friday so they can go to the bar, get smashed, stay drunk all weekend, sober up by Monday morning and get back to work. The only way they know to cope with the redundancy and boredom of their lives is to distract themselves for a short while. So they live week to week for the escape. Some people look to substances. Others look to pleasurable experiences. Others pour themselves into their jobs, hoping that success will make their lives meaningful. Others turn to romantic relationships or accumulating position, position possessions. Some even look to religion, hoping that these rituals will give their life some kind of meaning or some kind of purpose. In Ecclesiastes, we find a guy who is faced with the monotony of life, who tried to find meaning in all of those things and more. And in the end, he concludes that everything is meaningless. So who is this guy? Well, let's look at verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. This really can be only one guy. Only one of David's sons ruled over a united Israel, and that's Solomon. Now, what do we know about Solomon? Well, we know a lot about Solomon, actually. But we know that shortly after David died, God came to Solomon and told him that anything he asked would be granted to him. So according to 1 Kings 3, Solomon asked for wisdom in order to rule the nation, and God gave it to him. His wisdom was known far and wide, and people would come from all over the world for it. Much of it is contained in the book of Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes. So we know that he was a man full of wisdom, but not only wisdom, but wealth and knowledge and power and fame. More of that than we will ever, 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 ever see. But what else do we know about Solomon? We know that the wisest man in the world became a greedy, lustful, power-hungry, idolatrous fool. He didn't deny himself anything he wanted, including women. 1 Kings 11 tells us he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And these women pulled his heart from following God and instead worshiping the false gods of their people. As a result, he ruined his kingdom and it was divided during his son's reign. Now, tradition says that Ecclesiastes reveals an older, repentant Solomon who's looking back over his life and considering the mess that he made and what he's learned from it. In fact, at the end of the book, we read a warning to his son not to follow in his footsteps. And it's a, it's a message that's just as relevant today as it was then. Because people are constantly sold the lie that if they just had more money, more pleasure, more success, then they'd be happy. The message of this book is really a critique of secularism and secularized religion. So just imagine this scene, okay? The crowds are gathered at the temple. Every direction you look, there's just this sea of people, this mass of humanity. Every one of them is waiting with anticipation and in expectation of, of the preacher and what, what the preacher is going to say. What's he going to teach us today? What, what type of wisdom is he going to share with us today? And then, then they see him. He's coming from the side and he's working his way toward the platform. And when he gets up to the platform, he takes a minute. He surveys the crowd. He says, vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Can you imagine what those people were thinking? I mean, this is their king. This guy had everything, wealth, power, fame. And now he sums up his whole life by saying, it's all vanity. Unbelievable. But that's what Solomon said. It's all vanity. It's kind of a strange word, vanity. Webster defines it as inflated pride in oneself or one's appearance, conceit. And that's kind of what we think of when we hear that word. But in Hebrew, it has a different meaning. In Hebrew, the word is havel. And it means breath or vapor. It carries the idea of fleeting. Like when you breathe on a cold morning and you can see your breath for a moment, and then it disappears. I mean, you probably get one or two of those here in Texas a year, I'd imagine but you know kind of just disappears james conveys a similar idea in james 4:14 4, when he says you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes but here we don't just see vanity we see vanity of vanities in hebrew a word is used twice to make it a superlative to add emphasis like the holy of holies is not just holy but it's the most holy so when Solomon uses the phrase vanity of vanities, he really means the ultimate vanity. The word for, for vanity, hevel, is used over and over again in Ecclesiastes. It's actually used 38 times in this book. He will say things are meaningless 38 times in 12 chapters. So buckle up, it's not an easy ride. But he uses it He uses it to express the idea that life is meaningless, pointless, worthless, futile, and frustrating because it's frail and fleeting. Often in the Bible, this word is used in connection with idols. And that's kind of the meaning here in Ecclesiastes. People try to find satisfaction in created things rather than the creator. And seeking satisfaction in anything or anyone other than God is idolatry. It's not that pleasure and money and success and stuff are bad things in and of themselves, but when a good thing is turned into a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. When a good thing is turned into a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. It becomes an idol. You see throughout this book that success and possessions, pleasure, and even religion are ultimately meaningless. They look like they can bring us true happiness, and this world really wants you to believe that. But it's all a mirage. They will never be enough, and they won't last. Whatever you try to build your life on other than Jesus Christ is ultimately, utterly meaningless. The Garden of Eden, which God created for Adam and Eve, was very good, according to Genesis 1.31 a fantastic and a meaningful place to live. But as Genesis 3 tells us, when they chose to rebel against God, Adam and Eve were kicked out and a guard was placed at the entrance on the east side. Ecclesi- Ecclesiastes drives home the point that life in this fallen world east of Eden is futile and meaningless. Paul parallels this in Romans 8:20 20 and 21. He says, "For The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children. God created the world as a perfect home for his children, for humanity, and he gave good gifts like food and drink and relationships. God designed these gifts to be used as he intended and not as an ends in and of themselves. They were designed to cause our hearts to worship the Creator. So when we eat, drink, or enjoy relationships, these activities are intended to elicit a reaction of praise and gratitude to God for His good gifts. But we rebelled against God's design, and we started using the gifts in ways that He didn't intend. We sought to find satisfaction in created things rather than the Creator God and that brought a curse on the world now there are death and brokenness and things don't work right we abuse the gifts so that now that food now food becomes gluttony drink becomes drunkenness and relationships and sex becomes lusts lust and adultery we reject our god-given roles in marriage Labor to provide for our families is now frustrating and difficult. Genesis 3 says sweat and frustration will characterize our work. And will ultimately return to the dust from which we were created. East of Eden and separated from God, we live in a cursed, meaningless existence seeking lasting joy in things that are eventually going to let us down. This is the reality of life under the sun. This is the reality that Solomon unfolds for us in this book. So look at verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now, under the sun is an important phrase found about 30 times in this book. It means Solomon is looking at the question of meaning from an earthly perspective. Solomon deliberately leaves out God's perspective, how his, his plan and his promises change everything. That's what you need to see throughout this book that there's more to life than what you see under the sun. So, what does man gain or profit for all of his work? Well, Jesus asks a similar question in Mark 8:36. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? The answer is nothing. Nothing. How much you make, how much you learn, how much, or how popular you are is meaningless because life without God is futile. If this life is all there is, then what permanent value is there to life? See, we tend to ask the question, what's in it for me over the small things in life? But we don't ask it over the whole of life. Like if I told you to show up in the parking lot tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., You would ask, why? I'd say, just show up. And you'd be like, well, why should I come? What are we going to be doing? What's what's in it for me? So we ask those questions over those small things. But we don't ask those questions over our whole lives. What's the overall profit of what I'm doing? The author's point is that that this life That if this life is all there is, then there's no profit to your life. That's what Solomon's trying to get at here. Now look at verses uh, 4 through 8 here. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. And all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Now what he's saying here is that life is like a treadmill. Okay, Each generation runs with all they have. And just like that person on the treadmill at a gym, when all's said and done... He may be hot and sweaty and tired, but he didn't go anywhere. Just like the sun does the same thing every day, and the wind does the same thing every day, and the streams and the oceans, it's all a circular pattern. The task is never done. It just repeats itself again and again and again. There's no satisfaction under the sun. The universe is trapped in a meaningless cycle that never ultimately accomplishes anything. And human experience as a whole mirrors this. You know what I'm talking about. You walk into the kitchen. sink is full of dishes, so you roll up your sleeves. You wash the dishes, you dry them, and you put them away. You walk into the kitchen the next morning, and what's there? Right? sink's full of dishes again, huh? Or you go into the closet. You see that the hamper's full of clothes. So you take those, you throw them into the washing machine. You wash them, you dry them, you fold them, you put them back. Go into the closet the next day. Hamper's full of clothes again, isn't it? I had to get my hair cut this week. I just had it cut like maybe a month or so ago, but it grew back. I had to get it cut again. These are the facts of life. More bills, more emails, more grass to mow. It never ends. What Solomon is saying is that like the ocean, our senses are fed and fed, but never filled. And like the wheel of nature, our history is always turning back on itself. It's always repeating itself. The journey goes on, and we never arrive. Under the sun, there is nowhere to go, nothing finally satisfying, or nothing really new. And Solomon's just saying in verse 8, he says, Listen, all of this is exhausting because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Now, there are some people who don't want to admit that this could possibly be true, and they'll go to great lengths to prove that, but listen to what the preacher says in verse 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It It has been already in the ages before us. Basically what he's saying is, people like to think that their life isn't meaningless, that their life isn't stuck in this circular rut by getting toys and trinkets pretending that they are a new idea. In the end, they, they might be bigger or slimmer or a, or a new color, but they aren't new. There's nothing new. What he's saying is that toys and trinkets and other new things are just a fix to get you away from the circular, meaningless life that you're living under the sun. And we all do it, too. You know, that new gadget or new clothes or a new house or a new car, it kind of brings this weird relief and excitement to it, doesn't it? I mean, have you ever thought about how weird that is? You know, that new iPhone that you just got that replaces the new cool iPhone that you got last year, right? And there's excitement about it. And the the new iPhone 8 just came out. But wait, there's a better one coming out in November. The iPhone X or 10, however you want to look at that. And listen, listen to what they say about the iPhone X, okay? It's entirely screen, One so immersive the device itself disappears into the experience. And so intelligent, it can respond to a tap, your voice, and even a glance. Well, they really know how to advertise, don't they? It makes me want to go buy one. <laughs> but will that make me feel better as a person after I drop over $1,000 on it? It might make me pull it out and check my messages when I'm around a group of people just so that everybody can see that I have the new iPhone X and I can kind of validate the reason why I have it. But will it make me feel better as a person no new gadget no change of work no change of job no increased income is going to make things better inside of you the more things change the more they stay the same the human race is the same bunch of sinners it always has been and nothing we have done really makes a difference If he hasn't gotten you down yet, boy, I'll tell you what, verse 11, he really lifts your spirits. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. What Solomon is saying here is that no one will ultimately be remembered. Now, we might object and say, well, there are some figures from the past that we remember, but really the vast billions of people that have lived on this earth have gained no lasting renown. Most live and die unremembered. You punch in and you punch out over and over and over again until you punch out for the last time. Then they throw you a retirement party, maybe give you a plaque, and the next day somebody replaces you. Business goes on, life goes on. Those are the facts of life under the sun. It's all meaningless and frustrating. And then he says in verse 13, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out By wisdom, all that is done under the heaven. 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. And then verse 17, And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. So again, here's Solomon basically saying, Look at my life as an experiment. People are always chasing after certain things in life. Wealth, power, religion, friends, work, pleasure. I chased after them all. I gained them all. Listen, I lived a high life. You know, I ate caviar and sipped sipped champagne with the rich and the famous. I played polo. I bought a yacht. It didn't satisfy. left me empty, so I hung out with my redneck brothers. I ate macaroni and cheese mixed with hamburger meat. We threw horseshoes, and we watched NASCAR. Kind of sounds like a party at the nap house, actually. But that left me empty, too. I tried it all. And it's like chasing after the wind. And that sums up life under the sun. It's all vanity. Meaningless. Aren't you glad you came to church today? (laughs) Welcome to church. It's all meaningless. Let's pray. Actually, some of you are probably thinking, man, this is great. I can use this week. You, you know, honey, can, can you mow the grass? <laughs> it's all vanity, vanity of vanities. It's all meaningless. <laughs> Didn't you hear the message? <laughs> but there's something going on here. And until you're ready to honestly evaluate life under the sun, ready to, to look at your life and see what real meaning is there or, or lack of meaning is there, You're just stuck on the treadmill. But if you slow down enough to look and come to the same conclusion that Solomon did, you'll start to see things above the sun. Ecclesiastes gives a a pretty bleak look on life, but the Holy Spirit had a purpose for inspiring this book to be written. He wants to expose the meaninglessness of life in a cursed world in order to create a hunger for something better. It pushes us to faith and contentment in God. The author of Ecclesiastes wants readers to see that there are only two possible conclusions in life. Either there is a God with a standard who will judge us at the end based on that standard, or life is totally meaningless. Only two options. Either there's a God and our actions have meaning, or there is no God and, as Hemingway said, Life is a dirty trick, a short journey from nothingness to nothingness. But deep in the human heart, we know that's not true. We know that what we do matters in some way. But we also know that this world is pretty messed up. Why is it like that? Well, God put a curse on this world because of our rebellion. With the purpose that frustration would ultimately drive us to him. The Holy Spirit-inspired Ecclesiastes to convict you of your own meaninglessness in your current existence in order to make you wise for salvation through Christ. Now, Ecclesiastes really can't be correctly understood without the conclusion. The bleak outlook of all the parts can only be understood in the light of the whole, and that's wrapped up in the conclusions, and that's in chapter 12. So flip over in your Bibles to chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 8. And really, this book ends the same way that the book started. Vanity, vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Then it calls the preacher a wise man who arranged his writing with great care in verse 9. The words of the book are delightful and true, verse 10. That is, they they give a true portrait of, of how the world works. In in verse 11, it says his words are like goads. The author compares the words of Ecclesiastes with a cattle prod. Because metaphorically, these words are meant to sting and convict and to move the reader in the right direction of walking in wisdom. Just like a cattle prod. David, in, in Psalm 23, speaking of the same great shepherd, talks about this. He says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. See, knowing you're you're on the right path is a great comfort. And God's word will definitely keep you on the right path. Now, one of the most important things that we can pursue in life is wisdom. This truth is a mega theme in this entire book of Ecclesiastes. But at some point, we need to simply obey what we know to be true. We can research an issue for so long That we begin to suffer from the paralysis of analysis. At some point, overthinking and over researching doesn't bring any progress in our life. For this reason, Solomon says in in verse 12, My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Boy, that is a life verse for the students out there. Now, I love to read. There's nothing like a good book and a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. The only problem is, is I can spend the rest of my life reading everything and doing nothing. Knowledge is what we know, but wisdom is what we do. What should we do to live a godly life? At the end of his life, history's second wisest man, after Jesus Christ, gives us the bottom line saying in Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Everything begins and ends, rises and falls, succeeds and fails, based on your fear of God. Proverbs 1, 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction wise counsel, ample resources, relational support, even knowledge are of no help to a person who doesn't fear God. And to fear God is just that, to live with a constant, deep belief that God sees and knows all and that you will give an account to Him. To fear the Lord is to consider God above everything and everyone else. To fear the Lord is to do what is right in God's eyes even if it means that the outcome may not be what we would want. To fear the Lord is to trust and obey. Trust and obey, because there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, right? But to trust and obey. See, fear and obedience toward God is our obligation because that's God's design for us. The reason to trust and obey is that, verse 14, God will bring every deed into judgment along with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Judgment is the motivation to trust and obey. Judgment is what gives every one of our actions meaning in this cursed world. We will will be called to account, each and every one of us, even for the things that we think no one else knows about. And why is that? Well, because God knows, right? And Jesus says in Matthew 12:36 and 37, that we will answer for every careless word that we utter. The reality of Judgment Day is how the shepherd cares for his flock here in this picture that Solomon gives us. In order to convict you, he goads with the truths that you will be judged and then vindicated or, or punished. And the New Testament reveals that the purpose of the law, the purpose of the commandments, is to convict us and bring us to Christ. Solomon and all of his descendants had a, had a problem. They failed and broke the commandments. See, but we have that problem too. We have all broken God's commands and sought satisfaction in things and people other than God. We will face judgment. And the bad news is is that we have all fallen short. This reality is meant to crush us in order to drive us to Christ. And that's the good news. Jesus lived a life that we couldn't live, a life without sin and perfect obedience to the commandments. And he died the death that we deserve to die. He took the entire curse of sin and futility and death on himself in order to redeem us from the curse. By turning from our vanity to faith in Him, He redeems us and gives us a new and meaningful life. Because despite all that we've said, there is something new under the sun. Those who are made new creations in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that. Our lives are broken by sin, but, but through redemption in Christ, He gives you life everlasting and life to the full now so that you can pursue God's good design for your life. Now, instead of seeking satisfaction in created things, we are fully satisfied in our Creator, our Redeemer, satisfied in Him alone. And you can correctly enjoy the gifts that He gives you as a way to worship Him. You don't need a million dollars. You just need Jesus. Romans 8. 18-21 18-21 describes a futile creation that, that longs for the curse to be overthrown. A creation that longs for resurrection from the dead. And a fallen humanity that screams along with that creation. The early church father Jerome said, What a vanity it is that the earth, which was made for humans, stays while humans dissolve into dust. See, the reign of death is strong. And it claimed Adam, it claimed Abel, David, Solomon, Peter, John, Paul. And one day it will claim you. But in a world full of grave plots, one grave is empty. And there is one man whom the dust cannot claim. Jesus is free from the curse. And he graciously offers that freedom to you. Cry out to him in confession. Cry out to him that you have tried to find meaning in something or someone other than him. And then find your meaning in him and in him alone. As, August, as Augustine declared, thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee.